Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby and today I'm joined by Professor Jennifer Clapp. Professor Clapp is the Canada Research Chair in Global Food Security and Sustainability at the University of Waterloo, where she focuses in particular on global governance of food systems. She brings together perspectives from political science, environmental studies, food studies and economics. She's also a member of the high-level panel of experts on food security and nutrition, which is an expert group advising the UN Committee on World Food Security. So, Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Toby, and thanks for having me as a guest. So what I'd like to talk about, or at least we can maybe start here, is a bit about the mechanics of how science advice works at UN level, especially when it comes to food. So I just mentioned in your intro that there's the Committee on World Food Security, which is, a, as I gather, an intergovernmental organization. And then there's this high-level panel of experts of which you're one. So what's your mandate? Right. Well, the HLPE derives its mandate from the Committee on World Food Security. That's the intergovernmental body that the HLPE provides advice to. And our mandate is really to provide science policy advice to member governments of the CFS. And that includes specifically three things that we're asked to do. We're asked to assess and analyze the current state of food security and nutrition and its underlying causes, um, to provide scientific and knowledge-based analysis and advice on specific policy-relevant issues using existing high-quality research, data, and technical studies, Uh, and third, to identify critical and emerging issues to help the CFS members prioritize future actions on key issues that require policy action. So in, in a way, it's the HLPE fulfilling this mandate uh, is not that dissimilar to other science policy interfaces that we all know about, like the IPCC, which provides policy advice to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, or say the IPBES, which provides policy advice to the Convention on Biological Diversity. Okay, then I guess the obvious follow-up question is um, to tell me a bit about the committee that you advise then. How does the CFS work? Well, the CFS was first established actually in 1974 in the context of the World Food Conference that it happened around the time that the 1970s food crisis happened, where food prices rose quickly in the in the context of the oil price shocks and etc. Uh, and the idea was to have an intergovernmental body, part of the UN, that comes together on a regular basis and coordinates policy at the global level on food security. Um, And so this has been an important body for governments to come together and share uh, information and come up with a way to coordinate how they're dealing with food security problems at that global level. Um, But in 2009, uh, after the 2008 food price crisis, there was a reform of the CFS that created what is called the Civil Society and Indigenous Peoples Mechanism, as well as a private sector mechanism. And what this reform did was bring in civil society, Indigenous peoples, and private sector stakeholders, as we talked about, they're very important for food systems, and gave them a voice uh, within the CFS. But they're not voting members. Governments still are the voting members who make decisions uh, in this committee. But what's interesting now is these other stakeholders are allowed to participate in the deliberations. Right. And I gather the the HLPE also came into existence around that time as part of those reforms. Well, the, the HLPE was established in 2009 uh, and we began our operations in uh, 2010. So we've been around for just over 10 years. And in that time, we've produced uh, 16 thematic reports, 
um, two critical and emerging issues documents. That's sort of the, one of our mandates is to identify those critical and emerging issues. Uh, and we've also published an issues paper on COVID-19, for which we've had three editions. Okay. And, and who's on this panel? Who are you? Yeah, that's actually a really good question because sometimes there's a bit of confusion about who sits on this panel. Well, when we talk about the HLP, we're really referring to all of the experts that engage and are involved and contribute to the products that we produce. We have a roster of over a thousand scientists and experts who regularly contribute to the work of the HLPE. And typically several hundred people might be engaging in one way or another through consultations. Right. So that's a pretty major undertaking. But I read that you're on the steering committee. So I guess that's at least a little less unwieldy. What we mean when we talk about the steering committee of the HLPE, that's something different. That's 15 people who are internationally recognized experts in the field of food security and nutrition um, from a variety of of disciplines. So, for example, um, economics, political science, geography, nutrition, health, agronomy, etc. These members typically represent all the different regions around the world as much as possible. So... Sometimes when people say HLPE, they're talking about the steering committee. But generally, when we talk about HLPE reports, a lot of people have contributed their expertise to those reports. Right. Well, that's kind of why I asked, because you can't ask a thousand people to co-write the report. No. (laughs) Yes. I'm imagining that it's the steering committee that actually does the job of bringing it all together and distilling the policy advice. Well, yes and no. I mean, I'll I'll walk you through how um, a report comes in, if if that helps. Yeah. So... What typically happens is the Committee on World Food Security makes a request to the high-level panel of experts to provide a report on a specific theme on which they feel that policy advice is needed. For example, the most recent report that we published this year in 2021 uh, was on the theme of youth in agriculture and food systems. So what happens is the CFS made the request for us to produce that report. And so the steering committee puts out a call for a project team to be responsible for putting together that report. And so what what that means is that different experts apply to be in the role of either a co-author on that report or a project team leader, in other words, to, to lead that report. And then the steering committee is responsible for choosing um, who serves as the project team for that report and also plays a role in sort of guiding what that report will look like. So the steering committee works with the project team very closely in conceiving of the report and, in a sense, providing a kind of an open consultation process with these wider group of experts. So we send out a scoping document that people can comment on, um, and then the project team goes off and does some of this work and comes back with a V0 draft, the first draft, and that goes out again, for public consultation. It's put online and people are invited to give their feedback. And so we typically get, you know, hundreds of pages of comments and feedback from experts around the world that then get taken into consideration in the next draft of the report. And the steering committee is involved in this all along the way in this process, providing critical feedback to the project team and in that consultation period. So the project team is kind of taking the lead on this, but the steering committee is very closely working with them on it. And the reason for that is we want people who are subject experts leading those reports. 
because not necessarily the case that everyone on the steering committee knows everything there is to know about youth and agriculture in, in that particular instance. So it's a great process that it brings in this wider expertise as a steering committee to the more specific knowledge base of the project team. And then once that report gets to its V1 draft, it actually goes out again to experts for peer review. And so a range of experts then, again, from a, a range of different disciplines, are asked to comment on that report. And so it gives that opportunity for the project team to make revisions based on steering committee feedback as well as external peer review feedback. And then the finalization of the report does have close involvement of the steering committee again as well, especially around um, how the key messages are framed as, as well as the policy recommendations that come at the end of every report. Okay, so the policy recommendations are added on at the very end. Yes, but they're done in consultation with the project team because obviously the recommendations come out of the analysis of the report. Mm, so that is quite an elaborate formula for each report. And it sounds like it's obviously must take some time. And I mean, we know that that kind of design has advantages and disadvantages. What do you think about that? Is it good that it's built in this kind of very robust way? Right. It's a, it's a great question. And um, I can put it in the context of some of the scholarly literature on science policy interfaces, um, which point out the need for a successful science policy interface to have scientific credibility, to have policy relevance, and to have legitimacy. So these various steps that we take within the HLPE to bring a report uh, to fruition really tries to speak to all three of those criteria for a successful science policy interface. So um, it ensures scientific integrity and credibility by including and consulting uh, different forms of expertise and knowledge and also the processes of rigorous peer and scientific review. Um, so that really ensures that the reports have that strong integrity and credibility. Um, and it, uh, the processes also ensure that policy relevance because we're responding directly to requests from the CFS who want to take policy decisions on those particular issues. So we have a built-in policy relevance by working closely with the CFS. And we're very clear in terms of writing reports that we're writing it in accessible language that policymakers can understand and spelling out specifically what we think are the, the natural policy recommendations that flow from that advice. And so it can be taken up very readily by the CFS um, in that way. Um, and these processes also are important for establishing legitimacy because we do go through wide consultation, enable participation by a wide range of stakeholders, and it gives them that kind of, the stakeholders, um, that kind of buy-in um, to the process so that they feel the reports do reflect, you know, even if we do identify areas of controversy or, or differences, it does reflect um, those different viewpoints. Yeah. I mean, I, I see those advantages. So you have a system that's very uh, strong in the ways you just mentioned. But on the other hand, it also ends up being slower, surely, than it would otherwise be. I mean, you're not the kind of science advice service where a policymaker can ring you up with a quick question and get a quick reply. Right. <laughs> yeah, which is also fine. I mean, I imagine there are other parts of the ecosystem which serve different purposes. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so just to drill down into this process a little bit more, because this really is the, the bread and butter of this, this podcast. 
You mentioned that there's an open consultation process um, at more than one stage of drafting the reports. How open do you mean? Is it like you bung it on a website and anyone can comment on it? You, anyone can register to provide feedback uh, to these reports. Huh. And you, you seek this uh, input from stakeholders, I guess, and maybe even the general public, so early in the stage when you're still collecting and, and drafting and weighing up the evidence. Yeah, I mean, there's a specific reason for that, and it might be good to explain a little bit, because food systems and uh, agriculture um, are, they're maybe a little bit different from some other areas of quote-unquote science, um, in the sense that um, if we think about the history of agriculture, for example, we're thinking back 10,000 years, uh, and most science and experiments that were done in this field were actually done literally in the field right? By farmers, by indigenous peoples, by those who were practicing the production and distribution of food. So the stakeholders who have knowledge that is relevant for understanding some of these issues and problems are not necessarily professors with PhDs who work in universities only. They include um, community organizers and they include indigenous farmers and they include civil society organizations. So we, we are quite open in wanting to get that kind of feedback. Um, and, and that feedback is collected and collated and then provided back to those who are writing the report. And it really gives a good range of the kind of feedback and input that we're looking for to complement the more quote unquote scholarly approach to that particular topic. Yeah. So it, it seems to me that there's two different questions here conceptually. So one is, do we want to include these other sources and forms of knowledge as well as like the cold hard science? And the answer is clearly yes. I mean, especially in the case of food studies, for the reasons you just listed, that's very clear. But then a separate question might be, all right, so how do we want to include these in the policymaking process? Because it wouldn't be immediately obvious to me that you decide to plug it into the scientific advice, the expert advice part of the process. You can imagine that policymakers might want to receive that kind of further input through other streams, so through consultations maybe, or, or you know, through the democratic process, for instance. And I find it intriguing that HLPE, which is the panel that represents scientific expertise, also takes those other kinds of knowledge, other perspectives, uh, largely non-academic ones, takes them on board in its work too. Yeah, I mean, well, governments, for sure, they're receiving all kinds of advice through different channels. Um, we take this knowledge into account, but we verify it with scholarly work on these particular topics. So it's not just that, say, for example, a private sector actor will say, you should have said this because, you know, maybe it would serve their, their economic interests. Um, of course, we have to take that information into account, but it has to be grounded in the scholarly or scientific literature before we would put that in a report. And we're also mandated in the HLPE to identify areas of controversy. And so this open consultation process really is useful and helpful for identifying what those areas of controversy will be. Because if we get completely different kinds of inputs on a particular question, it, it really flags for us that there's a lot of diversity in viewpoints on that particular issue or different ways in which data is interpreted. And so it helps us to be able to discuss the different sides of issues. And that's actually part of what we're asked to do is to identify areas of controversy to, and to present all sides so that policymakers know 
the different understandings that are out there before they make policy. We don't try to adjudicate. We, we just try to say, hey, there's a, an issue here on which not everybody agrees. And here are the arguments on one side and here are the arguments on another side. And, and we leave it to policymakers to make decisions around that fuller picture of, of the situation. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's so interesting. Because I'm just thinking about other systems. Well, the system that I know best is the one at European level where you have um, a scientific advice mechanism that works actually in lots of ways, quite similarly to the one you described. So we assemble a panel of experts, they assess the evidence, and then some advisors use that to make policy recommendations, blah, blah, blah. And when it comes to assessing and highlighting controversy in the subject, so it's well within the mandate of the experts to to highlight that and to explain it, and, and I guess sometimes try to kind of cut through the controversy. But that's in the scientific arena you know, where different bodies of evidence or different schools of thought might point in different directions. I'm not sure that our working groups are necessarily asked specifically to lay out the broader societal controversies. Like, I can certainly see why that kind of information is valuable to policymakers. I'm just not sure that in the European context, it's necessarily something that that policymakers expect from us, the scientists. Well, I would say that those different viewpoints we might hear from the range of knowledge holders that are relevant and stakeholders in the system is typically reflected in the scholarly uh, literature as well. And it may be that the project team that wrote an initial version of a report might not have been aware of some of the literature. And so oftentimes we're getting, if we get a particular suggestion, usually more than one person makes that suggestion and usually more than one person provides us with citations to follow up. And so that it is grounded in in the scholarly literature. It's not just that we would say, oh, well, you know, somebody from an NGO said this. It's it's more like we make sure that all of those bits of information are considered through the lens of the academic and scientific and policy literature. Yeah, understood. And then flagged up if it's relevant for policymakers to understand the issue. Exactly. I mean, and there, it's important that we do have a growing body of really interesting research in food studies that is bringing forward knowledge based on indigenous knowledge and farmer knowledge that is, it's not always in published form in scientific papers, but increasingly we're seeing that, that knowledge being brought forward in, in academia. And so that's helpful for us to verify in many cases some of these kinds of inputs that are coming from a broader knowledge base. But I think it's important that we take that into account. Well, now I wanted to ask you anyway about, um, in general, like the nature of food science as a subject for science advice. So one thing I understand from what you've been talking about so far is that the knowledge base, um, or rather the places where that knowledge is found, uh, are very diverse. What else? It's a great question because food is a really complex policy space and it's also a really diverse um, area of study. Um, and it's partly because food systems overlap with so many other systems that we need to understand. So food systems overlap with economic systems, right? Because food provides a livelihood, it's also a business, etc. It overlaps with ecological systems because food production relies very closely on ecological systems and health systems because the outputs of food systems have really important consequences for food security and nutrition outcomes, which have health 
consequences as well. Uh, and social systems, right? If we have unequal societies, this is going to result in unequal access to food, for example. So there's a lot of complexity in terms of overlapping systems that makes studying food and food security really interesting. And then adding to that is the fact that we have globally agreed norms that everyone on earth should have a right to adequate food, right? That's in the UN Declaration on Human Rights. There are other policy documents out there that, that governments have agreed to on this idea of the right to food. It's in the constitutions of many governments, this right to food. And so that adds an interesting element as well into this complicated picture. And so as a result, food policy really touches on a range of other policies like human rights, economics, trade, environment, climate change, equity, gender, nutrition, you know, it goes goes on and on. And as as we discussed already, like there's a lot of different kinds of expertise that have to be called upon when we're talking about food policy advice. So that's where we need to bring in those different kinds of knowledge as well as uh, different kinds of disciplines. It's not just a, you know, hard science thinking of like laboratory research that matters, right? We we have to think about big questions. And sometimes those are questions that they're just much more qualitative in nature than say quantitative. And they also require us to think about some of these normative issues like rights, human rights. And so it makes food policy, it's complicated, but it's also endlessly interesting and also extremely important because there are over 800 million people on the planet who are not getting adequate nutrition. And there's also huge inequities in terms of overnutrition on the one hand and undernutrition on the other hand. And so all told, around one in three people on the planet is not really being adequately nourished. And that is a huge issue. And so these outcomes are the product of these complex food systems. And so we need to try our best to understand the dynamics of what's going on. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, my experience and, and the experience of many listeners to this podcast is of science advice at a national level or maybe a regional one, regional in the UN sense, meaning a region of the world like Europe or Asia or whatever. But so you're working at a global level, as you just alluded to, that adds a whole extra layer of complexity. Oh, for sure. And I think that global level perspective is really important because on the one hand, as I just mentioned, there are these dynamics that are happening at the global level that matter for outcomes at the local level. So we need to consider how these global dynamics matter, like trade policy matters for food security outcomes in a domestic context, right? Um, but we also have to think about how practices at, at the local level could have global consequences. Global consequences, for example, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, which are contributing to climate change, but also policies in one country could actually have consequences for food security in other countries. And it's important for policymakers to consider those kind of um, interscalar, you know, from local to global dynamics and, and how they can affect um, food security and nutrition. So if one government, for example, um, one example that we, well, we've talked about in the context of the 2008 food crisis and again in the COVID crisis, if some governments decide to put export bans in place because they're worried that food prices are going to rise and there's not going to be enough food, then they're like, okay, we're going to stop exporting, right? But other countries might be dependent on those imports from those countries and that can have a huge uh, implication. So we have to take those global factors into account. 
And then thinking more institutionally, when your advice lands, what's the outcome? Because you're not advising a minister or a civil servant like drafting a national law, you're advising an intergovernmental body. So what's the target of your advice? What's supposed to happen as a result of it? So the HLPE provides advice to the CFS and that sort of lands in a process where all of these stakeholders discuss the issues and the reports that we provide to the CFS. The CFS meets annually, um, usually the, the second or third week of October around World Food Day and discusses all kinds of things on their agenda, one of which is usually an HLPE report, and usually they're making a decision based on that. And so it's going to what we would call, you know, quote unquote, policymakers, but those policymakers, sometimes they're governments, sometimes they're private sector, sometimes they're um, civil society, but it's only governments that make the decision and um, adopt the policy recommendations. So the idea is that the policy recommendations endorsed by the CFS are then taken back home to country level for consideration for adoption. So they're not they're not like binding. A lot of this is voluntary coordinating policy advice, basically. Gotcha. Which also then presumably puts you as a group of experts in a big ecosystem, which also includes national experts advising national governments about those same policies. Right. Yeah. Right. What are the hot topics that you're looking at right now? Yeah. Well, th- there's there's so many things. <laughs> there are so many things. Um, but just to say, what our most recent critical and emerging issues exercise that we did identified a a whole slew of topics that require further consideration and and we're working through some of those right now. So that report identified sort of data and digitalization, inequality, youth, um, food trade, food safety, conflict, urbanization. Um, These are all issues on which we need more information, the latest scholarly and policy developments for CFS. Um, But our next report that is being written right now, as we speak, is the report on data for understanding food systems. And that's really important because we're seeing a huge, a huge burst in technological change that is resulting in a lot of data, big data being available. How do we understand that data that's being brought forward in order to think about food systems and food system outcomes? And also how that data is brought to bear uh, increasingly in the process of uh, agricultural production. Uh, we're seeing the sort of, quote unquote, digitalization of agriculture. And so it's not just a load of new evidence you have. It's also like an impact on the object of study itself. You've got to figure out how to account for it. Exactly, exactly. So that report will come out in 2022, and it's a very uh, important, complex topic. And then the following report, the next year, 2023, will be on inequality. We're seeing growing inequalities uh, globally, both you know between countries, within countries, um, and that infiltrates into food systems and has a huge impact on food system outcomes. Um, so that report will come out in 2023. And these sound like uh, areas where the science isn't completely settled yet, where there are different controversies to unpick. Exactly. These are topics that are somewhat different from if we say, oh, what's the impact of climate change on agriculture? That's an area, interestingly, where I would say we actually have more agreement <laughs> than some of these other issues, like the causes of inequality and how that's affecting um, food security and nutrition outcomes. So these are areas where there's not necessarily settled science. Like, for example, on the, the data question, there are 
you know, lots of studies out there saying that we can bring data into farming systems by using satellites and drones and, you know, bringing this data forward so that farmers can make better decisions about how much fertilizer to put on their land and how much um, herbicides they might need to spray, et cetera. And this can bring sustainability. Whereas others say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, that data is all being owned and controlled by corporate actors now, and it's taking autonomy out of the hands of farmers and producers. So there are different concerns and interpretations about these kind of processes. And I think um, for sure, this is an area that's not necessarily settled, and especially in the, um, we're still trying to figure out what are the possibilities, but also what are the potential consequences. I find it very interesting that you're not only afraid to get your hands dirty with these controversies as science advisors, but in fact, it's specifically in your mandate to get your hands dirty, to, to try and highlight what's going on, um, and without necessarily ending up with the single voice of science. Oh, yeah, exactly. I think that's what makes us kind of unique in terms of the science policy space. But I also think it's really important, especially for policymakers, to be aware of this range of interpretations of what's going on. Because say, for example, if we came in and said, you know, this is all going to be interpreted this one way, and that's like our way or the highway kind of thing, take it or leave it, you know, make your policies. Um, I think it would we would lose some legitimacy because we gain a lot of our legitimacy through this process of open consultation uh, with stakeholders who then have buy-in to the process. And if there are different viewpoints and we don't identify those different viewpoints, then people will say, well, I'm not going to listen to them anymore. So it's a it's an important part, I think, of our legitimacy, not just with stakeholders of non-governmental stakeholders, but also with governments, because they need to know the range of ways that information can be interpreted and its relevance for how to go forward policy wise. Right then. So how is the, the demand from policymakers for your advice? Are they like waiting with bated breath to receive it and input it into their policymaking processes? Oh, yeah, definitely. Because we have this cycle of the reports Everyone's aware of when the reports are coming and the themes that they are focused on and ready to discuss those themes at the CFS and make decisions. And then what the CFS does with this policy advice is not just make decisions and say to governments, take this home and implement policies at the local level that take this advice into account, but the CFS also negotiates policy products, we call them, such as guidelines. And these are, um, again, they're voluntary guidelines, but they're really important for guiding policy going forward. So just to give an example, in 2017, the HLPE report was on food systems and nutrition. And just this past year, finally, after that process, the report gets received, it gets decisions made, policy advice uh, adopted, and then a process is launched to develop voluntary guidelines on food systems and nutrition. That's a set of guidelines for governments to refer to in making their own policies around these kinds of questions. And so that was quite a few years of negotiation that led to that particular policy product. And there are a number of others, like the negotiations are completing right now on, around agroecology and other innovative approaches. That was a HLPE report in 2019, and that process has been launched. Um, but also, there's a there's another policy guidance on responsible investment in food systems and agriculture to guide um, governments and others who invest in food systems to be responsible in those investments. So those kind of 
policy um, products like these voluntary guidelines are really important for establishing, uh, I guess, establishing norms and practices in the policy world. So it's not just that it sort of happens at a meeting and then it's sent home to governments. It actually has a continued life through these policy products. Yeah. So there's one more area I want to discuss with you, and this is one that might sound a bit like inside baseball to listeners who aren't necessarily following this particular space. Um, But for those who are, it will seem like the elephant in the room in what we've been talking about so far. So, So here it is. There's been some discussion recently about the best way to structure global science advice for food in future. And there's been a proposal in particular, gathering some momentum, to create a new international platform that as I understand it, it's meant to be a bit like the IPCC, or that's the idea, like to give advice in the same way that the IPCC does for climate change. I have to say, from where I'm sitting, it seems like every area of science advice seems to be trying to get on board with this idea at the moment. Like, I think there's quite a lot of IPCC envy going around the scientific community outside climate change. But anyway, where do you stand on this? Or where does the HLPE stand on doing this kind of thing for food? Right, well, it's an... It's a good question. It's a very relevant question because uh, in the context of the Food Systems Summit preparations this past year, some people have put forward the idea that we need a new science policy interface at the global level to provide the kind of policy advice that, say, the IPCC does. I would say first, of course, I think it's really important that we have a science policy body at the global level to provide independent, impartial, solid scientific and evidence-based policy advice that's legitimate in the eyes of all stakeholders. But I would say I'm a bit puzzled about why there's a proposal put out there for a new body because the HLPE already serves in that role. In other words, the HLPE is that body. Um, I, I would say I don't think it's a good idea to establish a new science policy body. That would be, um, it could have some potential implications. I mean, one of which it's not really clear what its value added would be since the HLPE is already in that role. It's also not clear to what intergovernmental body it would report. Would it report to the CFS and displace the HLPE or would it report to some new body that we're not aware of and could that undermine the legitimacy of the CFS? And the CFS is widely viewed as the most inclusive and uh, legitimate governance body at the global level for food policy advice. And we also don't know what its processes would be. Would it be as transparent? Would it be as uh, open and consultative? We don't really know. And setting up a new science policy body for food would cost money and take time to establish. And this is a moment where hunger is rising in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. It, it seems like a maybe not the best moment to be <laughs> to be moving in that direction. So, I mean, just to say there's a lot of uncertainty there. And I think partly maybe that idea came forward from some people because they weren't aware that the HLPE was already doing that work. And maybe that's because the HLPE has been quietly doing its work for 10 years with our head down and working really hard and working on a shoestring. And maybe we haven't done the kind of flashy reports that the IPCC does, but that doesn't mean we're not doing work. And the the way we do our science policy work, I think it's it's suited to the purpose of food systems and food policy, as, as I've already explained, by having that open and consultative and reaching out to different forms of knowledge to feed into that process and the way in which we have a steering committee and project teams really What it does is it ensures that our reports can get completed in the timeline that is needed for the CFS. 
because you know IPCC reports take years and years to come to fruition, and food security is a an urgent issue and problem that and when we're asked to write on these specific themes, we're we're trying to get these reports out in the space of two years per report. So I think that the procedures that we've set up are um, well suited to providing science policy advice at the global level on food systems. So I'm I'm less sure that we need an, a new body to come and displace us, which which could also have the result of fragmenting further food security uh, governance. Sometimes there's a sense that oh there's a problem in the world hunger, we need a new body to, to deal with it. And maybe the answer is to strengthen what, what we already have, which would be more effective. Okay, so strengthen it how? Right. Well, we, I mean, we're always thinking about what we can do to improve our work. And I'll, I can give you some examples of things that we've already been thinking about, one of which would be granting the HLP a bit more autonomy to determine the themes of some of its reports. So I, I mentioned already, we are mandated to respond to CFS requests for reports on specific themes and topics. And those specific themes and topics are typically outlined in something called the multi-year program of work. And that's based on those critical and emerging issues documents, which I explained happen every three or four years. And so the topics get decided well in advance of their actually, you know, once they're delivered, this idea was on the table three or four years ahead of time. But stuff happens, as we know. <laughs> COVID-19 and the pandemic has had a huge impact on food systems, and disrupting supply chains and affecting people's ability to access food. And so we've seen a huge spike in hunger in 2020, for example, as a result of the pandemic. It was something we felt as an expert panel we needed to say something about. But it wasn't in the multi-year program of work because it was an unexpected development. So we worked with the CFS chair to get a request, a quick request for us to do a quick issues paper on this topic, which has then turned into a much more substantial piece of work, an ongoing piece of work, because we keep updating it because the pandemic keeps changing. So if there was already a mechanism in place that allowed us to pick up on these not just critical and emerging issues over a long period of time, but like things that happen that need much more urgent policy analysis, because governments need guidance on how to address this. And I would say that they need guidance because, for example, I already said some governments might put an export ban in place and that might be exactly the, the thing that's going to disrupt supply chains even more. So urgent policy advice, it's often needed when, in these kinds of turbulent times. And so we'd like more autonomy to be able to step in when we need to. Yeah. Okay. But then there's, there's an ongoing debate, as I'm sure you know very well, um, about the amount of work that science advisors can or should do kind of bottom up on their own initiative versus what should come down from policymakers. And you've outlined absolutely many of the advantages of being able to pick the topics you want to work on and kind of spontaneously put them under the nose of the politicians to say, look, we've got news for you. This is on the horizon. You need to decide what to do about it now. On the other hand, though, you also said a little while ago, very eloquently, about the guaranteed policy relevance that HLPE enjoys right now because it operates specifically in response to requests from policymakers only. Oh, yeah, so, for sure. And that's one of the key aspects of a successful science policy interface is that its work is policy relevant, <laughs> right? And so you're right that when there is a request, it's guaranteed policy relevance. But we felt that in the case of COVID, that was clearly urgent and, and necessary. So I think, yeah, we'd have to ensure that we weren't just 
you know, going off and doing um, reports on whatever, you know, we fancy that's interesting to us, um, but rather has clear policy relevance. Anyway, so that's that's one area that I think we could improve. But there are others. I think I was actually the lead on it. We did a report in 2020, um, which was called uh, Food Security and Nutrition, Building a Global Narrative Towards 2030. And that report was actually kind of a different kind of report from what we normally do. It was requested by the CFS, but it was kind of a stock-taking exercise at the 10-year mark of the HLPE to draw on some of the big lessons from the previous reports and consolidate the policy recommendations for addressing SDG2, which is to end hunger and promote sustainable food systems. And um, in the context of leading that report, what we discovered was that we didn't have easy access to data from member governments about the policy recommendations CFS had made in the previous 10 years in terms of did they implement those policies and how did it go? There, there's actually little data collection, sadly, uh, on these topics because it, you know governments take the policy advice. They might make policies, they might not make policies, but if they do, are they collecting the data? It's because they're really busy, overwhelmed. There's a lot going on. Um, and we don't have uniform data collection systems set up for that kind of policy uptake. And so that's something I think would be really interesting. It might be very costly to put that kind of system into place, but I think it would be great in terms of trying to better understand how policies were taken up and did they make a difference? And if so, how? And what are the different experiences across different countries? And finally, I think we could also, well, we could use more money. I mean, every organization would say we could use more money, but we do operate on a shoestring. We're very effective and very efficient uh, with the budget that we do have. It would be nice to be able to do more outreach on our reports. Yeah, basically to reach more people with our advice and to raise our profile. And sometimes that takes, it takes funds. I mean, the the recent Food Systems Summit had an enormous budget, uh, for example, and they were able to, you know, really get their messages out there. And sometimes in this kind of like digital media world, that, that does matter. Yeah. But it might be important for your listeners to know that the 15 members of the steering committee and the project teams, this is all volunteer labor. We're not being paid. Well, I mean, based on what I've learned from you already today, it's obviously a very important role, which you and your colleagues play. Uh, and speaking of noble things that you aren't paid for, but do anyway, um, listeners won't realize, but because of the time difference between Canada and Europe and our busy diaries and so on, um, you did get up rather early today to record this interview. And I'm both grateful and impressed that you can be such a lucid and interesting conversation partner at an hour when I would definitely not be. Uh, which is all by way of saying thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor Jennifer Clapp. Well, thanks very much, Toby, for having me as a guest and for having this great conversation. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. SAPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. 
finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elizaveta Sushchenko. So I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.